It's time for OWC Radio, Tech Talk with Creatives, Conversations with host Serena Catania. And we are rolling. This is Serena Catania with OWC Radio, and I am so excited. Scott McLesley is on the phone with me. We've been chasing around trying to get this interview done for at least a month now, but his production schedule is unbelievable. Scott, where are you and what is happening today? Oh, by the way, I should tell people what you do, so they have a little bit of background. Scott is the Chief Technical Officer at Village Studios and Black Hanger. He's a DIT, specializing in 3D stereo and 360 imagery engineering, and he's also a post-production supervisor. And he's been around for a while now, even though he's quite young. So we have a lot to talk about today. And let's start off with asking you, where are you? Where are you going? What's happening today for you? All right. Uh, (laughs) Hello, everybody. It's super exciting to be on the show. And um, at the moment, I am uh, traveling to New York. Uh, we just wrapped a uh, shoot for uh, the first block of Salvage Marines, which is a sci-fi movie that I was not only doing DIT. I was flying some drones, shooting some camera. And um, uh, now I am off to do some establishing shots for our next thing. Oh, my goodness. So uh, it sounds like, are you in a car? You're literally traveling. I mean, when you say you're traveling, you're literally in the car, right? Sounds like it. Yeah, yeah, I am. Don't worry. I'm not, <laughs> I, I'm not behind the wheel, so safe to talk. Okay, <laughs> good, good. No texting while you drive. I'm glad you're not driving. That's awesome. So you're headed to the airport. Where are you currently? Uh, New Orleans. Oh, you're in New uh, Orleans. We, uh, uh-huh. Yeah, we uh, we. Uh, started off in Baton Rouge, and we are almost at the airport in New Orleans. Oh, my goodness. Well, we're just going to keep asking you questions. So, first of all, uh, let's just set a stage for what is Village Studios? What do they do, and who do they do it for? Okay, Village Studios is a pretty interesting project in terms of uh, its size and capacities, because the way uh, the way it was built, it's relatively new. Um, the uh, major renovations happened three years ago. So uh, what we tried to do is we tried to take the top of the top technology, basically shrinking a full-size production studio into a very, very uh, small footprint of a property, uh, keeping everything we need to run a full-scale production of uh, Tier 2, Tier 3, if we must. So, uh, and should I say we succeeded? Because last productions we did, though, Jeepers, Jeepers Creepers, Blaze, uh, uh, those are are movies you don't actually shoot in the middle of nowhere uh, in a really tiny studio, yet we managed to, uh, yet we managed to do it. So, Village is an interesting high-tech way of seeing uh, cinematography. Village does a combination of soundtrack work, audio work, film work, television work, correct? I mean, uh, it's all over the board. Okay. It's a studio that has a full cycle of production, starting from uh, uh, script works uh, up to delivery, up to international delivery. 
Uh, last feature we did, we delivered straight off the studio to theaters as uh, DCPs, and um, uh, a copy went to Cam. So uh-huh. yes, it's uh, it's a one stop shop for anything you need. Well, I'm on the website and I'm seeing pictures of Lady Gaga and Bradley Cooper for A Star Is Born. I'm seeing images of Willie Nelson. I can hear you getting out of your car. You're at the airport. You are such. You're just such a trooper to do this while you're traveling. Thank you. <laughs> so, my, my pleasure. Yeah. So. Um, this is amazing. You know, when you work in production, you just got to seize the moment, don't you? If we don't do this now, we're probably not going to have another another chance. So when you get to um, – tell us a little bit about Salvage Marines. When you get to New York, what are you going to be doing some – you're shooting some plates, or what are you doing for Salvage Marines? Um, uh, New York is going to be a different gig. I am still obliged not to talk about it uh, in terms of the NDA, uh, but uh, – Yes, this is going to be plate, sh- plate shots, shots uh, uh, from the drone, and uh, there is a special twist to it. That's why I need to physically go there and uh, uh, do, do it myself. Oh, my goodness. Well, we're going to have to talk to you again. So let's go back to Salvage Marines. What is that project, and what have you been doing on it? That's a really interesting uh, sci-fi TV movie that's... Uh, um gonna be released probably uh sometime early next year and um this is really weird because the way we, uh, we the way we set up this project in terms of uh, the budget allocated to it it was never going to actually happen but uh purely juggling technology we actually made uh, made it possible to squeeze this production into this kind of a budget and uh with certain artistic uh, decisions that we made we uh took very old uh lenses anamorphic lenses for uh for this gig which is not the usual way to go if you're trying to meet a short budget but what we ended up with is an image that looks like tier three production with all the glory of uh, anamorphic frame that was uh, that was basically shot by a uh, tiny tiny crew in um, in a fraction of time that you you used to uh, shoot shoot such projects with and um and most importantly this was possible because of the di workflow that we implemented there we had our editor working with the set online real time so he was basically cutting uh as we went uh there was a um like 10 uh, five to ten minute gap in between uh a camera stopped recording and the editor actually getting the tape so uh, before we broke down the set, we had a green light from the editor that we're okay. We have all the shots we need. We have all the inserts we need. Break down the set. There was zero reshoot on this uh, on this gig. And uh, yeah, th- th- this is mostly this is mostly done because the DI workflow allows us to uh, produce editorial footage in, uh, real time. Jeez. So this is season one. It's season one. I just want to set the stage for people so they can keep this in the back of their mind. Cause this is radio. We're talking about season one and, and where is this airing? Is this going to air on traditional television or is this for Netflix or who's going to, 
Where's this going to be? That uh, last I checked, uh, last I checked, distribution team uh, was uh, winking at me and uh, saying that we should talk about that a little bit later. Okay. So I okay. think there is something big coming up with this and um, don't don't know what it is, but they look excited. They look super excited. Knowing you guys is going to be something awesome. I'm looking on IMDb and I see it's starring Casper Van Dien, Armand Asante, and El Lamont, among others, and directed by Sean Paul Piccinino. Piccinino, did I pronounce yeah, that correct? Yeah, Sean, Sean Piccinino, a wonderful person to work with. Uh, he can energize with his enthusiasm the entire crew. It's very pacey. It's... Uh, uh, I enjoy working with him. He, uh, he knows his deal. Well, he definitely looks like an alpha male, judging from these pictures I'm looking looking at. So, okay, so you worked on, how long did you work on Salvage Marines, and where was that shot? Uh, another, an, another interesting fact about uh, Village Studios is we tried to do as much as possible either on the property or like 15 minutes away from it. So, uh, the entire thing was shot in uh, Baton Rouge, Louisiana, uh, right around where the studio is. Oh, that's great! Um, yeah, there is some uh, there is some really exciting scenery with uh, a partially abandoned uh, uh, structures, factories in the background. So it uh, it really worked for us uh, to. Uh, uh, depict planets with poor ecological uh, situations. Uh, picture looks really wonderful. Oh, I can hardly wait. This is going to be fun. So tell me again what your role was on that film. What part, different parts did you play? Uh, that, was, that was really interesting because uh, on this specific movie, I mostly focused on camera work since... Um, uh, agility of my camera rig was pretty much needed there. Uh, so I stepped uh, being camera B, action camera, but my team was doing all the DI. So I kind of supervised that hmm. since um, uh, the, main, uh, the main DIT on this gig was one of, my, uh, one of the graduates from my mentorship program that I run. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, yeah, I can tell you about it if you if, if you want. Um, but basically, under my supervision, I had uh, two of my team members uh, grinding through uh, DI workflow, and that was nothing easy because we shot those uh, on uh, red helium so full resolution. So mm -hmm. that was about 10 to 20 with all the plates we did per day, uh, 10 to 20 terabytes. So you were shooting 8K off the helium? Yep, and you wow. and you cannot and you cannot crop this down because uh, uh, because you'll crop the lens, uh, you'll you'll crop the physical image. And since we committed to uh, such a an untrivial uh, selection of lenses, we didn't have that much of a range, so we could easily allow ourselves some cropping. So it was all shots of pure 8K, uh, no. Uh, wow. Nothing, nothing easy in there. No, no latitude for error. You've got no room for error with shots like that. So you're shooting on the helium. What? Who made the lenses that you were using? Oh, actually, the lenses, the lenses are um, amazing. So it's Hawks uh, hockey lenses, and uh, those are actually 
ancient Russian Lomo lenses that were rehoused into a new housing in China. So the lens itself <laughs> just traveled the world at least one, one time just to get to us. And this, this lens is 40 years old. So it does bring all the character, all the, uh, all the history of cinematography that it physically uh, had through itself. Uh, you, you touch this lens, you realize that, oh, something wonderful happened with this uh, thing. Wow. Uh, so how did you retrofit and, this to the red camera? Did you have to take it to a special outfitter to have that lens? Um, I mean, what happened there? No, 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 no. It's actually, uh, it's a good question because those lenses, uh, nobody likes them because they're old and they're tricky to work with. They breathe mm-hmm. like hell. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm, I'm talking like uh, certain, certain, lens, certain specific lenses. You cannot focus rag back in the shot. You will, you will see the, uh, you will see the plane. Mm-hmm. So with all those restrictions and limitations those old lenses bring, uh, you have to kind of dance around them. Mm-hmm. But uh, for the housing itself, it's a PL mount, so oh, okay. it's, uh, it, really, it really fits. Uh, except this PL mount is just screwed onto. Uh, onto a uh, flat lens uh, lens back, so it kind of plays as is. So throughout the gig, I had to, uh, yeah, m- most of the lenses visited the bench at least twice. I had to uh, realign them a little bit mm-hmm. uh, to keep working because just wear and tear throughout one gig kind of needs uh, needs the lens to uh, be serviced a little. So, so now, that's why I know uh, that's why nobody works with them. Uh, that's, yeah, uh, that's but you where know, you get the authentic picture. Oh my gosh, there's so much history with those lenses, and there's just something wonderful about stepping back in time. So I'm just curious about the production meeting when you were talking about the camera you wanted to use and the lenses you were going to use. What was that conversation like? Because this lens actually becomes a character in the film, doesn't it? I mean, it has so much personality of its own. Uh, what went into the decision? Uh, this lens definitely is a character because just <laughs> committing to anim- anamorphic, you uh, you basically shoot your frame, holds more information, so your creative uh, 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 si- uh, your creative side starts to uh, think what what else can you uh, populate this uh, frame with. You, uh, yeah, the lens dictates how you will approach this picture, and the lens dictates uh, the action in the shot. The lens dictates movement. Uh, yeah, it it is a character, and mm-hmm. it this character has a character to it. <laughs> oh, I can hardly but, wait to see this. So, you're gonna? Do you think you're gonna keep uh, using this lens throughout the series? Uh, we we basically locked it down to uh, being the lens for this uh, for this gig. It defines the picture, and we're not we're not jumping off it. It's very hard to work. For example, uh, uh, when um, and this is uh, the forty year old lens in a sci fi movie. It's basically uh, past meets future. Uh, so you have to, uh, as any uh, action sci fi movie, you have to have a lot of action uh, dynamic scenes in it. And dragging this, the lens is super heavy. And dragging it uh, on an easy rig or on a Ronin, it's just purely painful. 
What so, is it? Well, how um, much do you think it weighs? Do you think it weighs like 15 pounds or something, or is it heavier than that? I, I, I'm a metric person. Oh. Uh, the entire rig, uh, the entire rig uh, was about 39 kilos. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Yep, that's back to 40 years ago. <laughs> but since, since I do have some experience flying uh, stereo rigs back in the days, uh, that's kind of felt familiar. <laughs> yeah, so you have to be but, strong yeah, the, the, to do the, the, that. This is this is uh, this is on the limits uh, on the limits of uh, basically gimbal capacities. I can do more, but uh, the gear uh, needs to catch up with me. So yeah, basically it's it's as, as big as it gets. Wow. So you've got to be tired at the end of the day, right? <laughs> tired but happy. Yeah. You know, cinematography is nothing and nothing of an easy job to do. But if we still do it, something does attract us to it, right? And for me, it's excitement. It's always excitement. You know, I, I want to step back a minute, and then we're going to come back to the workflow. But I'm very curious about you and when you were a child and where were you and where were you living? And when did you first realize that you were this wonderfully creative person? What did you like to do when you were five, seven years old? Uh, I liked to, um, <laughs> I was good at, I was really good at breaking stuff, uh, but since, um, uh, since I spent most of my childhood in Russia, there was not too much of an infrastructure to repair stuff I broke. So uh, when uh, when my mom got her first computer, and obviously I broke it in 20 minutes, oh, no. uh, she told me that, okay, uh, son, this is the reality. I have to do work, and this thing does not work. So whatever you must, go go to a library, read a book or something, but this, this thing needs to get fixed. I didn't want to upset my mom. So I guess that was the first time I fixed the computer. <laughs> That's awesome. uh, since since then, uh, since then, the part how it works uh, dominated over the part uh, over any other aspect about a piece of technology. So uh, definitely, um, when something new like 3D or 360 imagery uh, pops up, I'm I'm the first to jump it and I'm the first to explore it. So you're definitely an adventurer, right? Yeah, yeah, and I, I, I totally like uh, abusing uh, technology and uh, basically misusing it, uh, <laughs> just to figure out, uh, just to figure out if it works or not. Uh, because this is this is how you invent. This is how you come up with something new. Take something that already exists and try to uh, uh, try to mix it together. So you, uh, you've got to have really fast drives um, to run all of this media. I mean, if you're, if you're shooting between 10 and 20 terabytes a day, where, where is that going and how are you managing that media? Talk to me about the DIT side of all of this. All right. So basically, um, for the last half a year, my, uh, my magic wand uh, would be a Thunderblade drive from OWC, which is just, uh, should I say, ridiculously fast. Yeah. It, it, made, uh, it made it possible. So uh, I basically run a small distribu- distributed network uh, for transcoding using uh, numbers of conventional machines to um, bring me some computing power. 
Uh, nobody is using them uh, nighttime anyway. So uh, basically, uh, for the transcodes, uh, I I shouldn't say steal, but I definitely but I definitely rely on uh, rely on uh, uh, computing power of every single machine we have in the studio, and I'm not talking just uh, editorial machines with. Uh, high processing power. I'm talking everything. I'm talking office machines. I'm talking Mac minis that we play out music in the bar with everything. And when it adds up, it's really, it's really fast. But it needs, it always needs a fast hard drive to uh, feed all these machines uh, their chunks of data to transcode. And this is where OWC Thunderblade comes into play because it's, it's a drive that is big, uh, that is fast enough, not just for one machine, but for four simultaneous uh, streams, uh, six if you must. Wow. And this is the this is the trick that actually allowed us to have a team of uh, three people uh, grinding through the entire footage, uh, producing uh, editorial material, and I'm not talking just. Uh, uh, the side stream that read uh, uh, read firmwares know know how to figured how to do. You can record a raw and you can record a ProRes, for example, for the editor straight on, on the camera. But it cripples the camera. It cripples the bandwidth of the camera. So we could not allow ourselves that. It would it would cap our resolution. So we couldn't go that way. So we had to physically transcode everything being uh, synced with sound, pre-loaded, and uh, uh, pre-graded, and that's what our editor got as, uh, as a footage to work with. Wow. Okay. So you, were, you, you actually applied the LUT on the set. Uh, we, uh, we, actually, uh, we actually produced uh, looks on set uh, according, to, according to the scene we're shooting because uh, uh, during your normal shooting day, you're jumping back and forth from one scene to another, and they're not uh, usually they're not usually uh, meant to be cut side by side. So uh, you got to shift from from place to place, and um, uh, that's basically uh, how it goes. So you have to you can't just upload one lot and call it a day. You have to constantly tweak, change, and uh, uh, do a full on. Uh, color grading on set and for that we use Q-Take. I'm sorry you broke Q-take. up okay yeah uh, we use Q-Take Q-Take that is uh that is a software I think it it comes from Slovakia uh and basically this is a uh tool to uh uh give you ultimate uh, possibilities uh on set with video assist and everything you uh, might want set-wise. So basically, we grade with uh, uh, Q-Take and live-grade uh, junctions, and uh, that goes uh, that goes imprinted as metadata into every R3D that gets exposed on set. Can I ask you a naive question, because I'm just wondering, is that non-destructive, or is that actually baked in? No, that's nothing... Um, Nothing is uh, destructive with uh, okay. those workflows because uh, the R3Ds and the initial set of metadata that camera produces 
is basically read-only uh, as soon as it gets off the sensor. The only, uh, the only place you can manipulate this data is only after two copies, uh, two backup copies are produced and um, uh, all the checksums are uh, checked and matched. This way you can ensure that if you, if you mess up something, at least you have another copy to restore from. Before that, uh, as I like to joke with my students, one button that, that's missing from DIT's keyboard is delete. It's, I'm sorry, is the what? It, it, it's a delete button. <laughs> we don't yeah, delete no, no. anything. Even if it's ridiculous and should be deleted, we can mark it for deleted later, but we never use the delete button on set ever. Yeah, sometimes it's hard to know what's in the director's mind, too, as much as they're good at communicating. There may be something that looks absolutely ridiculously wrong, but fits yeah. somewhere in the final cut. You're really smart about that. So what are is, can, can you walk me through a piece of media and take me through the workflow? So, you know, you've got your scene, you've got your camera, the media goes into the camera. And where to walk me through uh, how it's handled from there? For example, anyway, I don't want to. I don't want to jump okay, ahead let, too let, far. Let, 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 me, let me break this. Uh, let me break down this workflow for you, super quick. Okay. So it's a red camera that obviously exposes exposes on a card. Mm-hmm. Uh, out of the camera sticks the usual Teradec for the focus puller, mm-hmm. and another lead goes to our on-set video village uh, card, which is just one. It's not, a, it's not even a card. It's a Peli case on a C-stand. So you can take this thing with one hand, take the C-stand with another hand, and it's super mobile, runs off the batteries, and it's run and gun. Mm-hmm. So if you need, if you need a, uh, a chase card to follow a picture car, you can just toss that in and uh, ride immediately. You don't need to rig anything. Mm-hmm. Which adds uh, which adds a certain level of agility to the entire show. Uh, after that, uh, that uh, card has uh, a an Aja uh, as a capture device mm-hmm. for for the computer that runs QTake, and uh, QTake takes this image, encodes it into an H two six four stream, and distributes it on the local network. Uh, to companion apps on uh, on iPads and iPhones and uh, name it, it has a, we have it for it. Uh, so everybody can see live image off the camera wherever they are on set. That's awesome. This is very important for mm-hmm. dynamic lights, for uh, any close-up, uh, for uh, makeup and costumes so they don't miss anything. Uh, we don't need a crowd over one monitor. And uh, usually with directors somewhere in it, not being able to make decisions just because it's too loud. Mm-hmm. We don't want any of that. So director has his own iPad. Everybody who needs ha- has his own, their own iPad. And uh, everybody is keeping their cool and keeping their quiet. Um, on that station, uh, there is an ability to pre-grade live, live image as well as any previous, uh, previously shot take. Um, so you can go back to something you shot previously and apply the lot that you just created back to that uh, previous clip, and the metadata will be uh, followed up to the director and uh, basically 
uh, attached to this uh, raw file, so you will never lose this information. That's awesome. This information gets uh, this information gets synced from QTake metadata. Basically, QTake metadata is getting added up to R3D metadata upon um, upon the offload of the card. Uh, obviously, all of those machines are connected uh, to one uh, network, and the machine that does the offload basically um, asks QTake for metadata for the clips it's currently holding. So everything gets synced automatically, and <clears throat> not just that. Another, uh, another uh, copy of the footage is generated with, uh, with the QTake itself, with SDI feed that's going off it, by uh, by QTake, it records a chosen uh, chosen format, which for me is uh, usually uh, ProRes since I'm a uh, Final Cut guy. But our editorials are mostly Avid, so uh, I do another one of DNX HDs. And um, uh, you don't need a 444 off the uh, off the red uh, red SDI since. Uh, uh, since, since it does not deliver anything uh, worth uh, keeping in such a uh, so, such a thick codec, okay. but uh, what it is, it's 422 mm-hmm. or even a ProRes LT, just for con- for convenience and speed to okay. uh, to work with it. Mm-hmm. And uh, DNX HDs are generated on the fly as yet another stream, and this goes straight to the editor. With uh, with the sound that's coming off the mix board, that's going actually back into the camera. Um, so I so I have uh, a proxy mix down of sound uh, synced to an R3D file, uh, just because this is another layer of uh, uh, protection against mm-hmm. uh, errors uh, that I do like to have on uh, on my workflow. Basically, if the time code goes off, uh, uh, if naming goes wrong, you still have that audio track. You can perfectly sync your footage uh, to one another with just because it was embedded when you were exposing the card. Mm-hmm. So uh, just, just, another, just another trick that uh, would save me if everything else failed. Um, after that, uh, DNX, since it's a pretty light uh, codec, uh, get uploaded to the cloud using uh, a truncated uh, a device that holds uh, five uh, USB dongles connected to different uh, different cell phone services. So it gets me, uh, wherever I am, it gets me a pretty good bandwidth uh, to the cloud. And that gets uploaded to the cloud, and the editor can start working uh, with it as soon as it gets, it gets uploaded. And then... Uh, the entire workflow takes about what five minutes to process any given footage. Wow! Both <laughs> so you're working with proxies, and then you'll marry it later. That's that's the reminds yeah, me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like the old yeah, offline yeah, online. <laughs> yeah, nothing. Nothing actually. Uh, nothing actually happened since then because uh, we used to we used to have this as a digital intermediate. Now it's the other way around. Now you now you have to have uh, the same process, but for proxies, just because your original media is too heavy and bulky to work right. with for the editor and for for the rest of the team, except the colorist. Nobody touches a raw footage but the colorist. 
That's perfect. So what NLE is he using? Is he on so, Final Cut? Oh, it's, it's mostly Avids now. Okay. It's mostly Avids, but recently, and I'm a huge advocate for this, uh, I like running everything on DaVinci, like the entire workflow on DaVinci. Uh, it usually takes a uh, an editor who is up for the challenge uh, because it's just because it's new and nobody got used to it yet. Mm-hmm. But if you stick to DaVinci for uh, NLE, for sound, for grading, and for delivery, oh, it's fast. Yeah, it is. It, 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 cu- it cuts you at, at least two jobs on, uh, on overall c- transcoding and conform to one click of a button. Yeah, basically, uh, basically everything uh, after after we uh, after we're done with the cuts and we have an EDL, which is edit decision list, which is a small XML file that just uh, that is a text file with hold up, that's the chopper passing by. All right, uh, uh, that's <laughs> a uh, that, that's a tiny XML file that basically says go from first second second of clip one and. Uh, uh, take everything to second number ten, then go to clip two. Right. Take uh, from second four to second five, and it's just a list of uh, edits. With that, conform to the original footage. That's that's the first place original footage comes into play, and uh, that's for colorist. So, yeah. So yeah, we're we're working working proxy. How is DIT going to be handled in the future, in your mind? Um. I'm pretty sure most of my colleagues will hate me for this, but um, I'm sorry, folks. We're not meant to uh, be on set. Uh, yeah. Okay, that's but pretty that's radical. So. <laughs> How is that going to work? Let me explain this to you. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I've been uh, I've been doing DIT for what almost eight years, ten years now, mm. and. Um, uh, throughout my uh, throughout my career, I experienced so many different uh, variations of how a DIT should be uh, uh, used on set. There is never a standard, and uh, what grinds my gears is there is never a project that utilizes the potential of a DIT 100%. We either don't know that, we either never knew that this feature ever existed or we just don't have time for this or the DIT is not experienced enough to do all this in uh, some uh, realistic time framing because grading or editing on set takes uh, takes not just uh, uh, understanding how you edit it takes you uh, a really a unique approach because you you have to do it in a hurry you have to do it in a most uncomfortable space and yes the light will be bleeding on your monitor and uh well get a black t-shirt if you if you're up for the challenge that's <laughs> that's like that but uh throughout uh, throughout summarizing all of that i realized that most important part that dit actually uh, does for the gig is done on pre-production. Uh, establishing correct workflow that does work for the specific gig, uh, for the specific genre, and for the specific pacing production chose for uh, for the shoot is the most important task for a DIT. 
if you can build a workflow that is uh, that is perfect, it will run on its own. You're not needed there uh, because what we're what we're confusing uh, and what everybody loves to confuse about DIT. There are two distinguished professions. There's a data wrangler or data manager or uh, yeah, uh, and there is an actual DIT who does not offload cards, who does not sit and uh, stare at Silverstack. He is a guy to understand everything from the sensor being exposed with picture to the delivery to the furthest uh, theater in, in the world you're, uh, that's uh, featuring your movie. Unless this is not that, sorry, dude, you're not a DIT. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I've seen very, I've seen very little people with that much, uh, with uh, with the entire knowledge for them to to operate with, because most of the times it's not needed. We just don't know about it. Mm-hmm. So my my idea was instead of instead of having a super competent person uh, trying to. Uh, uh, wrangle uh, very heavy equipment uh, through sets. You know, there's a running joke about deploy DIT uh, on uh, on uh, different meme sites because no. <laughs> the card itself is just super bulky and uh, usually it stays in the camera truck just because you don't need it on the set itself. Well, what do you know? If it stays in the camera truck, can I stay in an air-conditioned uh, studio then? <laughs> if I'm not on set anyway, like what what what, what challenge do I have to uh, what uh, what do I have to solve to make that happen? Do I have to increase bandwidth uh, from from some place to some place, or yeah. do I have to trans transcode it on site so I don't have to have big uh, huge bandwidth to actually push this uh, footage on the through the cloud? So it takes smart decisions on the start. To basically automate the process while you go, mm-hmm. I'm not saying uh, I'm not saying a person uh, with an understanding is not needed there at all. Well, if something breaks, you're the first to be cold. Right. But for the general for the general uh, normal operations, uh, this person is not needed. Like grading wise. Um, Seven out of ten gigs would uh, either ask you to pre-grade the the upcoming shot, but uh, still revert to 709 looks to uh, to put the lights properly. Mm-hmm. Uh, the only the the actually the uh, the only uh, feature I witnessed color grading be- on set actually benefiting the picture is um, where we shot a lot of night scenes and we had to. Um, uh, and we, we had to basically grade it to uh, dark night. And then DP was adding a little bit of flare lights uh, after the grading, looking at live picture. Uh, he added some uh, additional uh, uh, like supplemental lights uh, looking at the graded picture. He wouldn't be able to see any of these if uh, if it was not graded to to dark uh, darkest nights mm-hmm. we can possibly have. Mm-hmm. So that was that was an advantage. We actually benefited from that. Uh, in most cases, when it goes against time, 
like, okay, we will see this, uh, we will see this shot as it is right now, or give me 20 minutes, I'll grade it for you. We don't mm -hmm. have 20 minutes. No, you uh, don't. So, and uh, you, you can never imagine how much frustration it brings to a dip that is there, that wants to do it, that knows how to do it, that's almost done it, but no, you can't have those two minutes, sorry. And it's understandable because those two minutes are needed elsewhere. So, if, so you step back and you run Rec seven oh nine on the on the monitors and <laughs> yeah, not 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 because not because there is something wrong with my grade uh, with my color. It's just because the DP feels more comfortable looking at familiar seven oh nine in terms of uh, balancing out his uh, light scheme. Right, and uh, I understand. I would do the same. I would do the same because mm -hmm. I can reference seven oh nine off memory where uh, with very uh, deeply graded picture, I'll have to go back and forth to the dip asking uh, what's with the highlights here, what's with the shadows, can we add here, can we remove there? It's a process. So for smaller gigs, uh, DIT and Data Wrangler should be, um, their, uh, not their position should be reconsidered, but their task list should be reconsidered. Mm -hmm. Maybe shrinking down a little, maybe, uh, maybe utilizing a workflow that we didn't discuss yet, but that's something I'm working on right now, and it's coming. It's mm -hmm. coming. Mm -hmm. It's going to be a hardware solution. Uh, I can tell you that uh, right now. And oh. um, yeah. I want to see this. It's you have to stay in touch with me. Talk to me for a minute before you... Are you okay on time? Because I know you're at the airport. I don't want to make you miss your flight. Uh, yeah, I, I have a little bit more time. Okay. Uh, yeah, so we're, we're good. Let's just talk for a minute about Grand Isle. And I also want to ask you, you mentioned the Thunderblades, which I think are one of the world's greatest hard drives available now. They're so, so, so fast and so reliable. Did you use uh, Thunderblades? You said you used them on Salvage Marines. What is Grand Isle? Talk to me for a moment about uh, that project. Uh, Grand Isle is a uh, is our previous production that we did with Nick, starring Nick Cage, and um, it's uh, uh, the Grand Isle is a is a place in Louisiana, the uh, uh, on the Gulf, and it's a really deserted city, uh, like very. Uh, um, it works from season to season, uh, fishermen, but. In, in between seasons, it's very empty. And the story is about... Uh, uh, should I be talking about that? No, I shouldn't be. It's not yet released. Sorry. <laughs> oh. <laughs> uh, but but uh, what, I, what I totally can talk about is uh, how, we, um, how we did the eye workflow there. And uh, funny enough, uh, the whole movie was shot... Uh, in, in the studio and uh, in the property right next to it, which is a wonderful Victorian uh, mansion that the movie takes place in. But uh, the actual Grand Isle, I was the only person to go to and get some uh, drone coverage and some establishing shots. Uh, so, yeah, uh, I was the only one from the crew to actually see the place. Um huh. We used some, uh, we we had uh, two reds there. We had three reds working there on 6K, and we also used Thunderblades, 
because the um, the workflow was pretty similar to um, uh, to Salvage Marines. It's just my favorite thing. I, I tend to drag it from from gig to gig. It just works for me. Works for everybody. Um, so uh, we had an online editor there as well. It was his first gig with us with uh, with current workflow, so he was kind of um, wrapping his mind around the spacing. But week one, we we he caught up, and uh, since then we were online all the time. So that really sped up the thing. So how were you how were you using the Thunderblades? What what role did they play in the workflow? They play the key role of being the first me uh, first medium to. Uh, receive the first offload of the card. Okay. So uh, from that moment on, when it lands on the Thunderblade, uh, certain processes happen to it. It gets transcoded to DNXs. It gets transcoded to okay. H264s to, uh, uh, to go up the cloud to be dailies. And um, uh, the same, uh, same Thunderblade uh, serves to... Uh, to be offloaded to an LTO because that's another thing I'm using on set. Since you don't need to touch red uh, raw footage till you grade, it's a very good place to store it. LTO tapes. Hmm. Especially with uh, with you know when you're shooting 8K, you really need the space. That's awesome. Well, the Thunderblades. Are you using the the new generation that you can stack them or because these are four terabyte, I think, right? Oh yeah, I'm using I'm using the new generation that that you can stack. And before, I had I had some time with previous generation, I just, and I just 3D printed the uh, the stands for mm-hmm. uh, for those. So yeah, definitely. Uh, they since they're passive, since they don't have active cooling, uh, they heat pretty good. And offsets and uh, standoffs is uh, is a necessity with Thunderblade. But what do you know? Keeps your hands warm. Yeah, and I, I think I need to let you uh, catch your flight. But one question. You, in the middle of all of this, you're mentoring young people. How, oh, yeah. how, how do you do that, and how do you find the time and why? And then I'll let you go. Um, that actually is an ongoing thing. I have about 10, yeah, uh, the last one was 10. Uh, yeah, I got 10 graduates from... Uh, from my mentorship program, and um, um, it goes like this. I take a person from a film school, uh, well, ideally graduate of a film school, and I bring him along. It's, it's, it feels like an uh, internship program that you have on most gigs in the uh, United States, but those guys get to bring your coffee. And uh, this does not work with me. I want a person to be hands-on from day one, understanding that responsibility is something he cannot uh, is something he cannot skip. So uh, appearing on set uh, as is, over the shouldering stuff I'm doing, helping, taking over. And uh, it finishes off with him, uh, with, with the intern doing his, a gig of his own, where I usually man some adjacent position just to uh, see that he's okay. But Salvage Marines had uh, one of my graduates uh, doing, uh, taking over my twisted DI workflow 
and actually <laughs> managing to uh, uh, to keep up. Oh, she's great. I think that's a wonderful gift to the new generation. It's that's you're just teaching them really good business ethics too, and you're providing something to them they don't really get in a lot of internships. You're right about that. A lot of internships yeah, just have them schlepping coffee and making copies. It's that. How much do you learn doing that? You know. I I, dr- I drink very uh, hard to brew coffee, so I don't challenge <laughs> them with this. But uh, but as for as for working with actual footage that costs actual money, yeah, that's that's something that will uh, inevitably happen to you. So why not starting it with uh, like right now? Yeah. Oh, Scott, thank you so much for taking the time. Where can people go on the Internet to find out more about you, Village Studios, and your company, which is Black Hanger? Yeah, it's either blackhanger.com. I have a small personal site that is scotty.ru that I rarely update, but definitely you can find my information there. And um, I don't know, if somebody wants to apply uh, as my next uh, intern, I'll be happy to uh, see the application. So why not? That's awesome. So in order to do that, would they go to Black Hanger or to Village Studios? They, they would go to uh, Village Studios. Uh, that's where I'm currently based at. Okay. Um, I'm thinking, uh, I don't know about my plans for London, but uh, uh, currently I'm in Louisiana, and uh, that's where I uh, operate from, and that's where we're going to be studying at. Well, this is great. And I, I want to thank OWC, not just for sponsoring this radio show, but also for providing filmmakers like you with amazing equipment that they can use reliably on the set. So uh, you have a wonderful, wonderful trip. Thanks for doing this. And when you can talk about this new project, let me know and we'll interview you again, okay? <laughs> uh, I would gladly uh, come back to your show and uh, talk, talk about that when that is possible. Thank you for having me. Oh, that's wonderful. Uh, Everyone, that was Scott McLeslie with Village Studios. I'm Serena Catania. And remember what I tell you, get up off your chair and go do something wonderful today. Thanks for listening. And thanks to OWC for sponsoring our show. Have a wonderful day.